Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Victoria Reyes, who is the author of the book, Academic Outsider, Stories of Exclusion and Hope, published by Stanford University Press. Dr. Reyes, welcome to the podcast. Reagan, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be invited, and please call me Victoria. Great, I will do just that. Um, so we're here to talk about your book, Academic Outsider, um, and which is which uses your lived experiences and research to talk about exclusion in the academy. But before we went into that, I wanted you to be able to just tell us a little bit about yourself, and I also wanted you to also tell us a little bit about your your research that you that you've done because you're also the author of the book Global Borderlands published by Stanford University Press. So I wanted I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the research that you've done um, as well as anything you want to share with us to introduce yourself. Sure, thanks. So um, I guess I'll just start with the book since you mentioned it. Yeah, my first book um, is called Global Borderlands, Fantasy Violence, an Empire in Subic Bay, Philippines. It came out the second half of um, 2019. And so sometimes I forget that it was also um, like the publicity for it was impacted by COVID just because it was right beforehand. But here I really draw on ethnography, archives, interviews, uh, legal documents, to really study Subic Bay Philippines as a particular kind of place, right? I'm really interested in legally plural and legally ambiguous places like military bases, tourist resorts, uh, colonial trading forts, special economic zones, um, international branch campuses, right? Where these these laws are, are legal and plural. And in the book, I document and talk about and theorize how this affects all aspects of life, right? Not just... Um, for example, laws, although I go into that, and I, I use Subic Bay was a home of a former U.S. Um, Subic Bay naval base in the Philippines. Uh, it, the U.S. military withdrew in 1992. It became a special economic zone. And here in each chapter, I really do this comparison between the military base and the free port zone in matters of law and jurisdiction in terms of money and authority, right? Uh, um, kind of trade and who has access, who controls air, space. Um, I'm really interested in taxes, although not a lot of people are, through two criminal cases of U.S. servicemen who, um, content warning for listeners, who uh, commit sexual violence against Filipino women, talk about kind of romance between um, foreigners and Filipino women, and as well as kind of children, how they play a role in these legally ambiguous places and, and working consumption. And so it's it's a book that kind of touches upon a lot of work, and, and it's really about this particular kind of place and how it's a place made up of several social worlds and the ways in which legal ambiguity um, plays a role and thinking about sovereignty and how that uh, shapes intimate relations as well as consumption patterns. In terms of me, um, you know, we'll probably get through this in some of the questions since Academic Outsider is, is a personal story. It's about me. Um, you know, I my mom was 15 when she had me. Um, mom and my family, uh, my maternal family is from the Philippines. 
my grandma came over to the U.S. through marriage to a U.S. serviceman. She left my mom in the Philippines until she was about seven and brought her over. And my mom had me when she was uh, 15 years old. So my grandma uh, raised me and I'm very lucky to have my grandma uh, now help me raise my kids. Um, And I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. I went to, I'm a sociologist. Uh, I got a PhD in sociology, but I recently transferred to a gender and sexuality studies department. Uh, And I'm really excited in part because I think that this book um, may find a, um, a better home or at least maybe a better home or a better fit with um, interdisciplinary work when disciplinary um, conventions uh, would traditionally exclude it. Yeah, thank you. I think that definitely the book will uh, find a home interdisciplinar- inter- interdisciplinarily. And I think it'll really speak to a lot of different, um, a lot of different readers and types of readers um, who, who pick it up. I myself was very was very taken with, with the entire book. Um, and so I could, I can begin, I guess, with the title of the book, which is academic outsider. And you define that as being quote, separated from other academics and from university life more generally by our lived experiences. And I wondered what brought you, what you, what brought you to write this book, academic outsider, and, and how did you develop this idea or this term academic outsider? Yeah, thank you. And and first, thank you so much for your kind words. Um, this is a really raw and vulnerable book. Um, really, what brought me to writing this was the COVID shutdowns. Um, my solo parent, uh, two kids, as I mentioned, they just recently turned eight and four. Um, they were my uh, daughter, Olivia, was in kindergarten. And James, my son, had just started preschool um, right before the shutdowns. But before even the shutdowns, um, the no, the September before the COVID sh- shutdowns in March 2020, um, my grandma had a heart attack, and it's just the four of us. And that really kind of shifted my whole world um, because she was my rock, and and also because. I mean, she was watching James all day and, you know, I was the one when she had her heart attack kind of picking up and and doing all the kind of um, care work associated, you know, after she got out of the hospital. And then then she had pancreatitis and and taking her doctor's appointments on all this. And so we um, I had to enroll James into preschool. Um, And so he was there starting, I think, in October. And then just a few months later, um, the March 2020 shutdowns and, you know, my daughter, kindergarten, she had to do virtual kindergarten. James was back at home um, and at my life, everyone else's lives, mostly um, completely turned upside down. And um, Olivia stayed virtual also for the following school year because my grandma is immunocompromised um, and there was no vaccine. And in some ways, I'm very lucky to have her here. But those 18 months were so incredibly hard. That first summer, especially summer 2020, I I don't know, Olivia, you know, she has some um, ADHD characteristics and, you know, she would be under her bed, virtual school, hanging upside down from her loft bed. And so we should actually share a room. I live in a townhouse in in Riverside, and so me and Olivia share a room, and James and and Grandma share a room. And I I couldn't concentrate on my empirical work anymore. I couldn't do anything. I felt like I was just drowning. I felt like I I felt like I just couldn't do anything anymore. Um, especially you know the the pandemic and. You know, Olivia's so sweet. She said that the first thing she, one of the first things she had missed about coming home is she missed giving her teachers hugs. Um, But it's also hard. You know, she would have these screaming, um, just bits and yelling. And I'm surprised we didn't, um, they didn't get, we didn't get the cops called on us. Um, Luckily, we had different neighbors because I've actually had the cops called on us before for James. but that's a that's a different sort of thing. Um, and so this, the very first draft of this book came about in summer 2020. Um, and the Unlove and Worth essay, um, 
which really goes, is probably the most, it feels the most personal to share. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't revise it because it was so personal. So any revision to that was because of my developmental editor, but really it just poured out of me. So I was like, I need to write because otherwise I, I don't know what I can do. I suffer from chronic depression. Um, and so I've, you know, I've had therapy for decades on and off. Um, and I take in antidepressant, uh, but my whole, how I cut myself together, right. My life beforehand was a very structured, very on top of things, very kind of scheduled, meticulous, and the pandemic just shattered and crashed all of that. Um, and so this book, so my other project went out, everything else went out. Um, and this is where I poured my thoughts, my thinking. I was also in a very kind of toxic department. Um, and some people were very understanding that I was a, a single mom of, of two. Others weren't so understanding. And I would get emails about why I didn't answer an email in the summer on a Friday, on a Monday, right? <laughs> so over the weekend. So this book is the result of that right? The book is the result of me trying to come to terms and thinking and writing and getting all of these emotions and thoughts and working them out on paper. All right, that was a very long answer. <laughs> and so your second part of that question was, how do you do it, come to develop this term, right? So part of it is I've just, I, I've been reading a lot and really drawn to Black feminism. Um, I'm not a black woman, um, right? My family is from the Philippines, um, but Audre Lorde's sister outsider was so incredibly spoke to me. It's not the first time I read the book in 2020, but you know, you know how you read things over and over, you know, you read things more than once and each time or at different points in your life, they hit you in different ways, right? Like they, they speak to you in different ways. And, and that's what was happening. And I was just so inspired by kind of thinking about this is a structural, right? Gendered racism, um, intersectionality, thinking about Kimberly Crenshaw, Patricia Collins, um, and Patricia Collins' work on Outsider Within, um, too, is really influential in thinking about the ways in which I, I experienced the academy. Um, and so that's part of, so Academic Outsider as the title, as a concept, is an homage to Audre Lorde. It's also, um, you know, an homage to Patricia Hill Collins and Outsider Within. Yeah, thank you. I love that coming to terms with all of these things that are happening, because that sounds like a very difficult time. And it, you know, it's difficult for, for all of us, but everyone experiences it differently, differently and for different reasons. And, um, I like writing as a way of coping with that uh, difficulty sounds um, really powerful. And as you said, the book um, is very, you know, vulnerable and it's full of all of these personal stories that you shared. And I really appreciated some, some of the moments you included um, in the book, for example, about how people like made you feel like an academic outsider. And, and I, I share this, this too. I probably, I, I probably would also be an academic outsider. I'm a black woman and a, and a woman of color. And so these, this resonated with me when you talk about going to like social events with other faculty and saying, quote unquote, the wrong thing during casual conversations and people respond with like puzzled faces um, people are constantly communicating through their reactions. They're shutting down conversations. They're giving these facial expressions that communicate that, you know, one doesn't belong. And I like this because I made me think, well, how does one know that one is an academic outsider? And then it's like, well, through these different interactions. Um, and then you also share these personal experiences that you just talked about um, growing up and, and with raising your children. And so I wondered um, why, why it was important for you to share these experiences throughout the book, or if you wanted to, to talk about um, your, your use of the personal in the, in the book. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I mean, I think part of your kind of question and, and the preface to it in terms of being able to to kind of empathize and see these similar microaggressions, right, that that occur and the stopping people in their tracks or facial expressions, et cetera, like it's not unique to me. And part of part of why it's so important to share these experiences is because sometimes, you know, it 
So, sorry, I, I also think very circularly. So this is why my answers are kind of not very linear. But in the former department I was in, you know, I, I constantly felt like I was being gaslighted, right? Or that I was just, I was not living in the same reality as, as people who were in positions of power, um, as if I did not just hear what was being said, as if these conversations did not just happen. And part of it is like, again, these, the kind of, um, interactions that I describe are not unique to me. I'm not, I'm not the first one to be writing about it. Like there's a long history of women of color feminisms in particular about academic experiences. And so for me, it was a way to also just work out and share with the world and, and again, getting it out of me. Right. So processing through writing, I, I love to write. I actually love being an academic, right? I, I, I love writing, research. I love mentoring. I love teaching. I love service work, right? People tell me I shouldn't say that, but I do. I, I feel like I can make a difference. But what I don't like is how people are treated. I don't like how I've been treated. I don't like kind of the the politics. And so, you know, it's important for me to share these experiences and I want to, but at the same time, to be honest, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I want people to read this book and I'm simultaneously terrified um, because these are the kinds of things you're just not supposed to talk about, even though, even though so many of us experience it, right? And so, you know, and everything, for, and for me as, a, as an ethnographer, you know, as, as sociology is similar to anthropology. For me, it's, it's you know, almost kind of odd to, to some people that the more specific you are, the more general you can be, right? So rooting kind of my experiences in very specific examples of what I'm talking about, people can see in those specific examples more clearly rather than in general terms. The other thing is that, you know, I, I really appreciate and you know you might be asking this later so i apologize i really appreciate that there's been this long history of like these edited volumes that come out the most recent comes to mind and i really love it is is uh, black feminist sociology by zakia luna and whitney purtle um you have presumed incompetent volumes one and two you have so many of these different volumes and it felt like i it felt like slices of people's lives Right. And and I know people had so many more stories. So I wanted to build and kind of theoretically uh, talk about um, how it impacted all all parts of my life. Right. The separation between the academic and the personal, just like the political and the personal is false. Right. What happens to me inside the university, inside the building is the same things that happen to me outside. And, And so this division between academia and the world outside there is no division right feeling like an outsider is in the world is also feeling like an outsider in academia the other thing that i wanted to say and sorry i know this is a long um answer is part of this is you know as we're going in in 2020 2021 now 2022 right I keep reading these advice columns, or I would read these reports, or read on Twitter all of the ways that we can kind of be even more efficient in time management, the ways we can reach out and we could do this and do that. And I was like, I, I'm at the end of, I'm, I can't do anything more, right? That it just wasn't about me. So, so in many cases, like just seeing right? All of these things happening and then being told like, it's up to me to fix it, or I'm just not having, you know, good time management. It just broke me again and it shattered me. And it kind of also brushed off or like made more weak my, my level of, I don't want to say being silent. Cause I, I, I'm not silent even before the COVID pandemic. Um, I, I speak out and I get that from the women in my family, but I just would tolerate a lot more things, I think. And I just, in academia, and I think the the pandemic has just kind of um, erased a lot of that ability 
to tolerate certain things. Mm-hmm. I know, absolutely. And um, no, I liked what you were saying about uh, the advice columns as well. And I think you you mentioned that in the book. And it, it you know, there's this idea that you know, if if people if people are just told what to do, then you know, then everything will be okay. And but it's it's like no, because that that might help but ultimately the you know you run into these structural issues and the way in which the rules can be applied in different ways um that can really trip you up um and so as i was reading your book i had some different you know revelations for you know for myself and um and i've been in in the you know academy for for quite not not the longest obviously in the world but but for, for quite some time. And I've, I've generally felt like discomfort in the academy, which you talk about um, in, the, in the book. And it's, you know, in ways related to race and gender. And I, th- that I had, had realized that I felt discomfort. But what I realized when I was reading your book was that, um, that you connect this, this discomfort to the way in which worth and value are constantly being assessed. And I'm just going to quote from you. You write on page 41, um, I had to prove my worth and value every time I met new people and changed roles, institutions, and stages in my career. To be an outsider, a racialized outsider, is to be uncomfortable. It means never letting your guard down, especially with people who you don't completely trust. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk about some of the ways that you see, you know, worth and value. Um, how is it? How is it being assessed, or how do we understand it in the university? Yeah, thank you for this. I think again, this was so. This was another one moment where kind of the separation between like my personal and my work. You know, I, I feel like before I would try to be very, you know, particular and it's separate. And you know, there are these different boxes in which I fill, right? And the the pandemic was like, nope, that's not the case. Um, but I, you know, um, I talk about in the book. And again, if I start like my voice going, then I start to tear up just FYI. I mean, I've, I've shared some things on Facebook. um, And I like start crying when I read comments about like, whatever. So again, this is very sensitive. But uh, you know, I I talk about in the book, it's not a secret anymore. Um, You know, my mom had me on a product of rape, and, and not just once, but multiple times and and molestation. And so you know, I grew up and she would um, tell me that she wished I was never born. I should have been aborted, that I was a bad seed, um, you know, and sometimes she'd apologize or, or not. And and even, you know, as, as adults, we would get into these big fights and all of, you know, I had a very tumultuous relationship with my mom and she um, died of breast cancer in 2018. So, I've been um, working through a lot of my emotions with her um, and her death, but, and this is where I've gone to therapy, you know, a, a lot and, and realizing, you know, that I have, I have sought, what I like about academia is I felt like, okay, there are these sets of rules. If I do these rules, then, you know, it's a meritocracy. And of course we don't, we know intellectually it's not, but you know, um, I feel like if I just did everything right, and if I do get this on my CV, or I do this, or I do that, um, I could finally feel like I'm worthy, that I'm valued, that I, I mean something. And again, something about the pandemic just showed me the parallels in academia, where I, I feel like love and worth are just assessed in so many different ways. And then, and part of this is also, you know, in my I think the UC system, um, as you know, is is unique in that, um, I think unique, often that junior faculty or system professors can be in on uh, merit and, and promotion discussions, right? That you're able to see files, you discuss them, even though you may not have tenure, et cetera. And so, so when I started at UCR, and it's not my first job, I was at Bryn Mawr College beforehand, you know, um, I'm seeing this in the ways people are talked about, in the different ways people are assessed. And really, you know, it it just 
it's academic politics, right? In terms of someone likes someone, they'll they'll say all the ways they like them, um, even if they don't have awards, even if they don't publish an X Y Z. Someone doesn't like someone, even if they have awards, even if they have etc. They're still never good enough, right? There are all these ways to kind of poke holes. And then it's like you see that in hiring and merits promotions. Um, you know, I uh, you see that in these everyday interactions. Um, you know, whether it's as a faculty member or as a postdoc. And I was a postdoc, I think, in that um, example from the book um, where I was talking to this famous person, and and I was just kind of dismissed. It also occurs colleagues as grad students, you know, there's a a story I tell in the book about, you know, I, the first time I smoked crack, right? Like I was, I was a bit, I'm a very different person than I was decades ago. Um, And I had, you know, the story I tell in the book and, and what happened is we were reading um, a book and oh my gosh, the name is, uh, the name is, is escaping me, but I said it was very evocative to this respected faculty member. And they were like, oh, like you would know. And in fact, I had smoked crack before. In fact, I have tried acid. In fact, I, you know, I have family members who, you know, um, been arrested for kidnapping and for drugs and dog fighting, all of these things. And so when there are these like, and really what this person said is is seeped in anti-blackism, right? Anti-black racism, because I, as, you know, a, a mixed Filipina American, didn't seem like the kind of person, right? Um, and so, so it's those ways in which you're stopped in your track and you realize people put you in boxes and they decide whether or not it's worthy or not, even R&Rs, right? Like editors have to decide who is going to get the revise and resubmit, who doesn't. And, you know, we've all heard these stories about, well, a famous advisor wants their student to be published there. So then they let other people know, and it's all these backstage kind of politics. Um, And so, you know, but it also starts at admissions and how like, graduate student applications are evaluated and when people's letter writers who are from top and prestigious programs are given more weight than than letters writers who aren't right all of that is assessments of love worth and also racialized and gendered in in many ways so it was just kind of me thinking about um all of these things in coming out. And so I, I really think it's part of of how we evaluate in all aspects um, of our work. And, and, you know, I think that sometimes people don't, um, and sorry, you may be getting at this later, people don't think of academia as a workplace, but it is, right? And, and this understanding of who is worthy and who is not, um, even kind of shapes our syllabi, shapes general exams, these reading lists, right? And, and you know, oftentimes, you know, my work cuts across so many different subfields, right? Um, global sociology, economic sociology, urban sociology, law and society, uh, race, ethnicity, gender, etc. Um, but, you know, my work isn't recognized as like, X thing. So let me give you an example. So I recently just wrote um, a piece and, and it, you know, often since, you know, the hashtag, as you know, Black Lives Matter as long before 2020, but, um, and again, the content warning for your listeners, um, but the murder of George Floyd really re-brought awareness um, to mainstream U.S. and and globally um, to kind of anti-Black violence and and murders. And in this this moment, a lot of sociologists have said, and I'm sure in other disciplines, oh, we need to study race more. We need to study racism, right? And so there was this paper and it called for new directions and, you know, for um, economic sociology of race. And what they do, um, these co-authors, they say, well, you know, we should study labor markets and we should study this, we should study that. But that's not the case, right? Like that's another way of when we write and who we cite, citation politics, 
are kind of conveyors of whose writings we value and who's not. Because in fact, tons of people, sociologists, but also non-sociologists have written about race and economic life. And so I wrote this book, this um, article that's published in Sociology Compass called For Du Bois and Economic Sociology and, and say that if we really want to reckon with the racism and the discipline, what we need to do is actually go back before we can move forward. And we need to recognize people who we have excluded and we need to read beyond elite journals elite books um, to orient our arguments. Otherwise, you continue to erase, um, particularly scholars of color um, and, and many marginalized faculty who have long been writing about this, but because they aren't published in these top outlets, um, their writings aren't seen as, as valued. So anyway, so sorry, that was a long tangent about value and worth, but I really think that that it's about everything, right? And how kind of academia is structured, especially since it's so structured around peer review. Mm -hmm. No, I think that that's, that was perfect. Your, your answer. It was, it was great because it connects all all of these different levels and it really, and, and as you say, these kind of conversations sometimes can happen in sort of back rooms in a way or places that aren't as visible. And so it produces this like this shaky ground for many of us and we don't know where to step constantly <laughs> and then you know can produce these like you like you talk about of being an academic outsider because you don't know um which way to turn in a way um and so i thought that was that was a great answer um and then in the book you also you, you kind of t- began your answer talking about this where you talked about you know your children and the pandemic um but you you talk about you know academic motherhood particularly for women of color and and then as you said you also talk about it during the covid-19 pandemic and so i wondered if you wanted to say any more about um how being a mother particularly of small children um relates to being an academic outsider Yeah, in so many ways, I think, Um, you know, because I think just the structure of the modern university, and again, I I don't think that I'm the first person to say this, um, isn't built for mothers. It's built for single white men or single or uh, married white men who have wives, who take care of the house, who take care of children, who then do editing for them on their books and their articles. You know, if you read acknowledgments, right, that's what you often see. Um, And all of this kind of unrecognized, unpaid labor that goes on in the household. And I think that, you know, being a mother kind of shapes it in in all aspects, you know, because when, well, one is you're supposed to get you know, parental leave um, if you qualify for FMLA or, you know, I'm lucky I uh, technically started at UCR before um, I began on campus. I started and then took a postdoc um, somewhere else. Uh, And so by the time I was pregnant with my second child, um, I was able to qualify for UCR and kind of the, because they had like a year long, um, 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 sorry, I'm blanking on the name, transitionary period, right? Um, um, Before you could use it. And it's everything from scheduling courses, right? And thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm a solo parent and my grandma can't drive. And so I'm the one who has to pick up and drop off my kids every day. And so I can't teach at seven. I can't have meetings at six. I can't have meetings at five. Um, Two, kind of thinking about, you know, I've had these Twitter exchanges where some people will be like, well, why don't you just, you know, um, when you get asked to do a review or you ask to do an R&R, just drop everything and look at that. And like, well, that's not so easy, right? Because women, particularly women of color, also have a lot of service requirements. You have, having kids for one taught me to be very efficient because you are responsible for so many things. And you can't just drop everything in order to kind of do emails or exchanges or go to conferences. Something I'm learning now, my kids are still young, but Olivia is going to be starting third grade. And now I have to think about I can't, I can't necessarily say yes to talks that I'm asked for because last year, so she was back in, in person, um, 
she she missed school. I used to take her when she was very young. I used to take her, James, and my grandma with me to conferences. So they would go to, you know, New Orleans, Seattle, like wherever I went, I took them. And I just ate the cost of my credit card debt. I have a lot of credit card debt. But last year, and this is when like I, I took her to Albuquerque for a conference. And then if I'm not here, my grandma doesn't drive. And then my grandma at that point um, was like, I don't really trust anyone else. She'll just stay home. So she um, didn't go to school when I was out of town. And then I get a letter from California, state of California and the, and the Riverside Unified School District. Well, too many unexcused absences. You could pay a fine, et cetera, et cetera. And so now I'm like, oh, do I need to hire? Can, how can I find someone to hire to take my kids to and from school if you know i'm giving a talk on a friday and i'm i'm flown out on a thursday and she can't just stay at home and then maybe it's not worth it because i don't have a second person who can take up the slack it's just me you know it's just me who does um a lot of things and so then i'm like well if it's one time maybe i can ask one of my friends from Olivia's school my parent friends and that would be fine but i can't ask them for that all the time so you know, especially being a solo parent, like I just, you know, my kids are, are in the background. Like, I just think like, then it's extra tickets. So then you have to think about field work, you know, like there's all these, all of these ways in which that it shapes so many things. And even just being um, pregnant, you know, shapes how students see you in the classroom and, um you know, I'm sure there's a lot more I could say, but I know you have a lot of other questions, but but that just came to mind because this is something I'm trying to work out now because I'm, you know, I was invited to give a talk in September, invited to give another talk somewhere in October, but I have to say no in part because like, and especially if honorarium aren't very much, like I just, is it worth it to then like try to figure out this care or not go to school what can I do? And and what's hard is, um, you know, all of these things, A, are not only good for my career, right? And in, in evaluations, you're like, oh, this person was invited to give this many book talks or from these prestigious universities from here and here, right? So it's part of just like how we provide and document our worth and value as academics. Um, but it's also, it can be fun. It's exhausting. It's It's emotionally exhausting and physically exhausting. But often like, especially if I know someone um, at the place, even if they're not in the department, I can kind of have coffee or like you have dinner with people. But then I, I get to, you know, thinking about my kids and all of the kind of hassle and arranging and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't, you know, my grandma's like, it's not worth it. So like, why, you know, it's not worth it because what are we going to do? And so I, I, sorry to go on and on, but this is something like I literally just had a conversation with her, like, two days ago and, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but that's one example. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And it's so, so difficult in, in the way that it compounds all of these different, all of these different issues. Um, so uh, in the book, Victoria, you really include a lot of work from social scientists, um, sociologists and anthropologists and you gave us a, a little glimpse of that in the in the beginning um, in in the beginning of the interview um, when you were talking about you know presumed incompetent and uh, black feminist sociology and Audre Lorde and you know um, and so you know you include these this research that talks about inequality and how it's per, um, perpetuated and you you know bring this together with your lived experiences and as you were saying earlier as well you know the university is a workplace just like any other workplace but so people might think well th these are the same problems that one would have elsewhere but i was thinking part of what adds to our frustration is that within the university at least within certain departments we actually study inequality and um and, and these kinds of marginalizing practices. And, you know, particularly like if you're in a social science area like sociology or, or like anthropology, or if individuals don't study it themselves, we're generally familiar with this literature. However, it seems to have little bearing on how departments and schools and individuals, you know, act, right? We continue to perpetuate this, this inequality. And so I wondered if you see within so social science and sociology, these potential seeds for acknowledging um, and challenging inequality um, in the academy and 
and also if you wanted to talk about, um, you know, how you bring in this, this literature into the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a heavy question. I, I definitely think that there are seats for acknowledging and seats for challenging um, inequalities. Uh, I think that they are so incredibly limited um, by so many things, right? So I'm, I'm very involved in the profession. Um, I really love service work. I am a sociologist. I'm, I'm very involved in the American Sociological Association and, and other associations. And, you know, I see, I see people trying. And the, the problem is, right, that it's not about individuals. It's about the structure, right? It's about thinking of um, what gets rewarded, right? And what gets rewarded is, for example, in works is to be novel, right? Um, So let's say publishing and publishing in top journals in a discipline. What gets rewarded is is what's seen as novel and that itself is racialized and gendered, right? And, and the exclusion of people who have long talked about, you know, topics are excluded. It takes a lot more work to read. It takes a lot more work, you know, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm always constantly reading and I'm always, I know this again goes to my like, inside self, you know, little girl who's like, I'm not, uh, you know, like, I'm not worth anything. And like, nothing I do matters. And I'm never good enough is that I'm always like, afraid I'm, I'm missing something. What am I missing? Who is who's reading this? Who, you know, who am I citing? You know, that's part of why even in my first book, I, I cite uh, from a wide range of, of fields and disciplines. But that's not rewarded, right? Like, what's rewarded is our claims to novelty within a particular, for example, subfield without thinking about how other people um, outside that specific subfield have written about the same thing, right? Like that takes a lot more work. Um, And it's also about, you know, reviewers. I honestly, I think, well, one, I think that there is like a lack of empathy, (laughs) Um, you know, that there's this, this huge lack of empathy um, because academia is so driven by the individual model. Um, I also think particularly, and, and not in an essentializing way, but particularly for white faculty and white men faculty, um, but also white women is with, as faculty of color, other marginalized faculty, you know, enter in and get challenged. Like I, Okay, I'm not really making sense because like I'm trying to think of too many things. But what happens is, and I'm not the first one. I, I reread what is it, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and I just I I used to teach a teaching sociology course for grad students, and I I um I assign it. But um, he talks about it in that book about how any check of power to the oppressor they experience as being oppressed, and I think that's what you see right? That's what you see in kind of these so-called debates of cultural or debates of so-called culture wars, right? Um, Where they see any check on accountability um, as a way to discriminate against them as, you know, white men or, or whomever. And so that's where, you know, I mean, this is a classic sociological insight is that people hoard and, and they make exclusions and boundaries and, you know, challenging that and challenging the structures where the people in power benefit from those same structures is really hard, right? It's really hard um, and it takes work. It takes a lot of work, especially in the U.S. when our, you know, U.S. culture is so like neoliberal, um, it takes a lot of work to kind of be more community oriented, to be kind of thinking about how do we actually change inequities. And, and honestly, like sometimes people just don't want to listen, right? Because they feel like it's taking their power away, right? Because the problem is not how do we change inequalities? People have been talking and talking about how to change inequalities for a long time. Right. But these are the very same people who are excluded from the academy who would have been. It's the problem is that people don't agree. People, 
people get um, people don't want to lose out on their power, right? Or have checks on power, and that's where you see these like these um, these faculty who say, "Oh, academic freedom and diversity is you know impeding my academic freedom." I there is literally someone in <laughs> who wrote an essay about that in my former department. Um, even I read Inside Higher Ed probably every day. Um, and there was even a story today, I think, about Amy Wax, who is a law professor at Penn, and Jonathan Zimmerman, who is an advocate for free speech, right? Often kind of faculty need to express, et cetera, et cetera. What I found really interesting in his article was also this delineation behavior, right? And that people use academic freedom as a cover to be discriminatory and racist to individuals. And I, I've seen that a lot too, right? And so it's this veneer of academic freedom means you can't question anything I say, right? Anyway, I, I'm going on a big tangent, but I think that there, there is so much opportunity and there's seeds for acknowledging and that there are moves being made. Like, I think that, that yes, there have been there have been kind of ways move forward, but there's so much structurally, culturally that it's hard because as I write in the book, like it's also, it's not just policy. It's, it's how policies are implemented and who's in power to implement it and, and how hard it is to kind of um, actually, when you do bring things up to admin or an HR or something, you get in, you know, nothing really changes, right? So it's really difficult. And so you see a lot of faculty, particularly um, faculty of color, women of color leave academia. And so people get pushed out or they get pushed out of disciplines, right? Like I feel this, I feel pushed out of sociology and not even in sociology in the product discipline. Like I really love sociology. I, I tell, um, you know, graduate students that, you know, sociology is so much bigger for, than your department and you need to make these connections and friendships and writing groups. And that sustains you because there are people who see your value and worth. But sometimes when we're in a department and that's not what we see, it's hard you know mm -hmm. definitely it's like we have to um take take our own work into account um like take it seriously and implement it on our on ourselves which is a challenge um and all the other complexities that you you laid out in the answer as well it's a really really difficult um kind of minefield that we're that we're in um and so I guess that takes us to to the final chapter because because you you've talked about like possible this the literature and these possible seeds for transformation, and the final chapter on academic justice kind of calls for us to like hope and imagine um, and enact these practices that combat exclusion, and um, and you detail this these different areas of academic justice and research, teaching, and service. And so I wondered if you could um, talk about your call for academic justice and if you wanted to maybe give, you know, an example from one of the areas um, of what you mean by academic justice. Yeah, I mean, I... Again, I'm not the first one I don't, to talk about academic justice. Even um, sociologists for women in society, another professional association, I'm I'm pretty involved in. Have a whole committee on academic justice, right? Like, there's a long kind of history, um, particularly of women of color who are long talking about this. Um, and I actually rewrote this entire essay um, to center it on Black Feminist Sociology that just came out, I think earlier this year, um, like in January maybe, and I read it and I just thought it was so inspiring um, that I rewrote this essay um, to kind of center um, the call for, for a loving sociology to what does it mean to listen to Black women, to what does it mean to, you know, have empathy and to kind of joy and also just treat each other with respect and dignity. I mean, for me, all of these different practices I outline, that's at the core is to treat one another with respect and dignity. And why is that so hard? It shouldn't be, right? But that I think is at the core and that gets back to the love and worth. And so 
you know, often, you know, we get peer review and, you know, I'm on publications committees and, and I see this and, and we think that dealing with racism and sexism in, for example, publishing um, and journal articles is intractable, right? Like, what can we do? What can we do? Actually, there's a lot of things we could do and things that people have already written about, like cope or like, I cite this one person who gave a um, a webinar at National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development, who is a, a journal editor and outlines all of these practices, right? It, it calls on a lot of extra labor from the editor. But these things about like, if you receive a review that is steeped in racism, sexism, and not in necessarily the overt ways people think of, but in the ways in which like the subtle ways or how things are evaluated as and dismissed so easily, right? That there are ways like the editor, you know, if they don't want to ask the reviewer to change anything or to think about tone or et cetera, that's fine. But the editor can say, don't listen to this person. Or I understand that this is problematic. Um, don't pay attention to it, or it's some acknowledgement, something like that would go a long way, right? Besides, like, who are you asking for reviewers? I mean, that's the other thing. You're asking for reviewers, people who are gatekeepers, um, who think that more for other people is less for themselves. And those are the people tend to, right? Like, not everyone, obviously, but um, tend to be the ones who are making the decisions, right? And you see kind of these notions of worth or notions of work just dismissed, right? Like even in when I'm on any kind of panel, right? One of the things I try to do is, you know, uh, I have to, you have to be an advocate for research that people easily dismiss. And often that is research about marginalized communities by a marginalized scholar, whether that's faculty, grad student, et cetera. And you have to do the extra work to be an advocate and explain and translate. And that's not okay because some people just dismiss it, right? Um, you know, and I've I've had experiences in, in the review process and, and so have other people. Um, but there are different ways in which, like I said, the editor, peer reviewers often get to read other reviews too, and they can call it out, send a message to the editor that they thought this other one was really inappropriate. Um, and it means having hard conversations. And, you know, people, I think, have a lot of ego. Um, and so they don't like to kind of, um, they get very defensive about, you know, whether it's their reviews or et cetera. But in that paper I was talking about, I talk about we need to have intellectual humility and that should be at the center, right? That we are infallible. I make mistakes. I have been called out, you know, like, and how do we respond to this? And it's not about doubling down, being defensive. You know, I think uh, you probably know the term DARBO, um, which is, sorry, I always get this wrong, uh, defense, attack, reverse Victim. That's something that comes up in, in sexual harassment, sexual assault, et cetera. I think that comes up in in instances of racism, um, gendered racism and sexism is, again, these like when you explain why, for some, for example, something is problematic, you get people to be defensive or, or they attack. And so anyway, so but there are ways in which, right, like. The answers are out there. There are guidelines and it's about having hard conversations or it's about what kind of, what kind of scholar do you want to be? What kind of editor, what kind of um, person, what kind of teacher, right? Like I think that, um, you know, we don't really get training on how to teach, but teaching is so important and it's devalued, not just unvalued, it's devalued. Um, but in fact, like teaching enhances our research, I think, and our research should enhance our teaching that we shouldn't dismiss or look down upon people who are invested in teaching who work with undergraduates, right? Like there's this hierarchy mindset um, that that kind of diffuses all around academia. And that's where it's like a workplace, right? I think getting back to what you said before about, you know, we study inequality or many of us. And so why do we perpetuate it? And, and we think that the university, our profession should be exceptional, but they're not, right? There's lots of nonprofit organizations that, you know, that are for gender equality or for anti-racist. And yet people 
the structure of the organization perpetuates these kinds of things. And so I think that we really need to grapple with kind of how to do it. And it and it takes a lot of work, right? Like it takes a lot more work to write a thoughtful review. But the, you know, some people have said, oh, well, we should do away with the second R&R. Maybe we should just do away with the R&R or something like that. And I'm like, the problem is not second R&Rs, right? The problem in kind of the review process is people, because I think getting rid of a, you know, the uh, developmental model will only further hurt marginalized people who don't have access to elite training, training how to publish things that I think mentorship is, is an important part. And the problem is like reviewing doesn't count for anything. It doesn't count for anything, right? It doesn't count in our merits and promotions. And if it does, it's the quantity, not the quality. Um, same thing with mentoring. I mean, I talk about in, in this and in, in another chapter about how anything can be spin, right? It could be spun to, to, to um, praise one person and devalue the other, right? Um, and that's where, you know, calls for mentoring. Um, Idea Harvey Wingfield has this amazing book called Flatlining, and it's about medical uh, profession and hospitals and kind of racialized tasks that um, uh, black faculty, black um, doctors, and nurses take on. Um, and one of the solutions is mentoring, um, right? We should have mentoring. We should formalize mentoring. I think that's great. I've also experienced where mentoring can be toxic, right? And I think you can see that in, in um, you know, recent tenure denials that have been high profiles because people use mentoring as a way to continue toxic behaviors of dismissing, oh, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. Ethnic studies is not, you know, is not real, quote unquote, social science, or it's not real research, or it's devalued. Um, or it's like, you can use mentoring as a way to bully, right? So, so it's not the, the necessarily the solution. Right. Or maybe we should just reward people who are doing the the kind of service work that the university relies on um, and, and teaching it to that. How do we go about our syllabi? So this gets back to what I was talking about before. And I know we have to wrap up with this teaching. We don't get training on teaching. So we don't really follow pedagogical good practices because we don't learn them. We don't know how to evaluate it. So it's sometimes, you know. Um, either toxic or even just like, I don't want to say bad pedagogies, but just kind of old fashioned pedagogies just get enacted because that's the way it's always been. But in fact, an academically just approach would, would talk about um, and read literature on pedagogical practices, would read about kind of um, and enact, um, you know, bell hooks, um, um, teaching to transgress and thinking about um, uh, thinking about all of this work, even you know what best teachers do that they are kind of there's this one thing where um, you know in my teaching, I often allow students to revise and resubmit their assignments. And why do I do that? It's because they learn that way, right? You learn, you get feedback. And then revise. And that's also, it, it mimics the real world, quote unquote, and even our own workplace. We have a way in which we revise our work. And that's where you learn. So anyway, so those are some of the things. And, and service and, and paying people for service um, is one way. It's not the only way, but as someone who um, uh, is a solo parent, <laughs> you know, I have to hustle um for money that always is helpful so those are just a few of the ways and it, and it's also in how we just talk about people's work how we approach our reviews but also our working groups you know the the best working groups i have are mostly women of color black women and guess what we start off with each person and we start off what we love about the work right the potential the great things right and then our job right? Our job, quote unquote. But what we want to do is how can we help you make this piece shine even more? Maybe it's to get engaged in that. Maybe it's to engage that. But often people are taught that their purpose of reviewing 
whether in, you know, the classroom or whether in journal reviews or anyone else is to poke holes and to tear down, right? Like that's the, the training many people received. I didn't, I had some, I had some good mentors um, at Princeton, um, Viviana Zelzer in particular, and, and some of her economic sociology classes enacted this pedagogy of care and looking for and highlighting the potential. And I think I valued from that, right? Like I've published in some top journals and it's because I've had reviewers who saw the potential, right? And helped me. And that's how I was able to do that. Um, and so I think like we can, we need to approach people even in our teaching and our service and in our research holistically and with respect and dignity, right? With care, because we're all humans, you know, I'm teaching uh, just to kind of, and, you know, I'm teaching a, I'm teaching this summer for the first time to classes. One of them is Asian American women writing themselves. And we're, it's great because I get to read a bunch of memoirs I haven't read before, but it's about just seeing people as human, Right. And approaching one another with care instead of in competition, right? That's not the way forward. The way forward for academic justice is centered on care. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that chapter was full of so many really practical insights that can be implemented in in various different ways. And you just shared um, several different aspects of that now that anyone could easily implement, you know, in their, in their reviewing practices, et cetera. So I thought that was really wonderful. And um, so my last question is about um, who you think should read the book, I guess, and what you would want them to take away. And I say that because these conversations about, um, as you've mentioned, um, about exclusion in the academy have, have really been increasing. Um, and, you know, they, I don't remember them as much happening when I was a graduate student, and I feel like I could have really used them. And so I wonder, and I think these conversations involve everyone, um, not just marginalized faculty. And so I wondered um, who you wanted to read the book and what you wanted them to take away. Yeah, well, and I just want to echo that there's a lot great coming out. And one that that recently came out too is Community as Rebellion by, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Lorgia um, Garcia-Pena. Um, it's very similar in terms of thinking about community and, and academia and, and talking about her experience and tenure denial at Harvard. And, and, and I think it, that's great on top of, you know, all of these long lines of books. But that recently came out. So I just wanted to, to um, mention it as well. You know, um, sometimes this question gets framed as like, who did you write it for? You know, uh, so I'm going to answer that first, even though you didn't ask me. Sorry. <laughs> um, I really wrote this book for me. As I mentioned at the beginning, I wrote this for me because I needed to, because it poured out of me. Like, I don't, I, I look back, I'm like, I don't know how this came out. I, I don't know. I feel like I was in a trance. I don't know. Um, but I needed to process. I needed to think. I needed to write. And so now, you know, as I'm, I'm thinking and I get asked, who's my audience, which is another way of who do you want to read the book? It's it's hard because simultaneously no one, everyone, um, but but probably the first um, set of people would be other academic outsiders, right? Whether undergraduates, undergraduates are so amazing. I got my start as an undergraduate and, and doing an honors thesis. And I was also involved in like ethnic studies stuff and and kind of opening my eyes, you know, to, to a little bit of the university. Um and, and how to become a more just world, because I actually think some of these practices is about academia, but it's about a workplace, right? It's about a workplace wherever you are and treating one another with respect and, and dignity and care. I think it's for other people who are, you know, on the tenure track, right? Trying to like, um, you know, get tenure who are postdocs, grad students who are trying to get through their program, who are facing all of these, like, I can't, um, I found great mentors, right? I'm very lucky. I found like two mentors in particular who are just really wonderful. And I could not have, I could not have done graduate school without those mentors or without my cohort. Um, and, and many people don't have that. So it's about 
recognizing it's about a mirror to show that you're not alone because it when you are the subject and the receiving end of of gendered racism all of the time you could feel gaslit but actually and this is where twitter you know there's a lot of problems with twitter but part of it is you can connect with one another another problem is people then retaliate for you know people who share things on twitter um but you know it's a way to connect so it's to facilitate connection or even precarious um, um, faculty lecturers, adjuncts, people who are in community colleges. I think also people who are tenured should read this, right? Especially people who want to enact change. Because I think I think the longer you're in academia and the, lo- the more you go up the ladder, you're increasingly, you can become, you don't have to be, you can become increasingly distant from the challenges um, grad students face, both white graduate students and graduate students of color. And so it's like a reminder because people, I I think everyone can make changes, right? Grad students, undergrads, um, adjuncts are are much more limited, um, tenure stream um, faculty, but, but tenure people are the ones who have the power. And if they really want to change things, they can. I'll tell you who this book is not for. This book is not for those people who don't believe in microaggressions, who will just read it and dismiss it. They probably wouldn't read it anyway, right? Um, um, So it's not for them. But I think, and I hope that people, anyone can take away, most people can take away, whether it's a mirror and feel validated, feel like you belong. You are here. You belong here. Your insights are good enough. Your insights, you are good enough, right? And we need you. And so that's what I would want people to take away. And also to not wait until you're in some mythical position where you think that you don't have any problems, right? Uh, to enact change. That actually there are ways we can we can act change and we can create communities starting now. We don't have to wait, right? We can be, I, I know this is kind of hokey or um, like cliche, be the change you want to see, but it, but it is right. Like who are who's around you? Who's around you? And and drawing boundaries and and making those and finding connections. I will tell you that I would not have survived this pandemic or anything without like the people in my life who aren't at the student institution. They are academics. <laughs> I uh, most of my life is academia, but they're the reason that I've been able to get here, right? And I'm so lucky and I'm so privileged. I've had people who are mentors, whether peers, you know, those who are in positions um, before mine, those who are, you know, more advanced than me, peers, all of them. And and I think that um, we have to kind of create the communities we want to see and realize other people are already doing it right? Realizing like, it's not just you alone. And, it, and it's finding, finding people who, who see your value and see your worth already and want to bring you in. Absolutely. <clears throat> Lean into those spaces where you are, where you are wanted and feel, feel more comfortable. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, with everything that you you said and everything that you've written, people will go out and um, read the book and really get a lot from it. Um, absolutely. Um, so we have come to the end of our discussion. Um, I've been speaking to Dr. Victoria Reyes, the author of the book, Academic Outsider, Stories of Exclusion and Hope, published by Stanford University Press. Thank you so much, Victoria, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast Oh, thank you so much for having me and and uh, talking with me and, and being very kind and patient with my tangents and sometimes losing the threads of my thought and, and having to find my way back. Oh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. 